As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. If you were to list Ayrton Senna's greatest drives, the 1993 European Grand Prix at Donington would surely be right up there. And if you were to list his greatest opening laps, there's every chance this would be right at the very top. Senna left everybody else trailing in his wake on that soggy Easter afternoon, including his nemesis Alain Prost, whose Williams team made tough going of the changeable conditions. But as Senna basked in his own glory and Prost's misery in equal measure, as ever there were plenty of other storylines from this weekend that rarely get a mention given how iconic this race has become in the Senna legend. So to help me, Glenn Freeman, work through Senna's brilliance and much, much more from Donington 1993, we have two men who were there that day. Gary Anderson, who was on the pit wall for Jordan, and Mark Hughes, who was covering the race. Gary, I'll come to you first. Thanks for joining us again. When you think back to Donington 1993, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Um, Frustration, annoyance. Um, really just wanting somebody to kick if I could find it. Uh, you know, it was one of those days when the opportunities were there and as a team, we didn't take them. Lots of reasons for it. Um, but yeah, frustration, frustration and annoyance. But it was still nice to see some very, very good drives through the through the grid. And, uh, you know, that's, a set, that's what sets the example of these guys. The good guys always rise to the top when things, when things like that are, are happening. Yeah, and I think that's one of the storylines we'll hopefully pick up on is that there were lots of other people other than Senna who drove well this day. Mark, you were covering this race. Am I right in thinking it might have been the first Grand Prix that you covered? What stands out for you? You're right. Yes, it was. It was my Grand Prix debut. It was for Motoring News. And um, yeah, I mean, that's that's really what stands out. It was, you know, operating in the F1 paddock for the first time. Uh, I knew a few people, but um, not most. And um, in contrast to how it was not very many years later, actually, it was remarkably accessible. You know, you could still walk into the garages and find people. If you, 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 you knew who people were, you could identify them and go and chat to them. You couldn't hang around there, but you could at least go and get the information you needed. Um, it wasn't all prepackaged. It was remarkably uh, accessible, actually, and I was quite um, surprised by that. Um, but yes, that was my 
my main memory. Um, I watched one of the practices in the pouring rain at, um, from the infield at Craner, and there's a big grass bank there that lots of spectators were sliding down. Um, not not deliberately. They just uh, yeah, that that was uh, another memory. Uh, it just tells you what uh, conditions were like that weekend. Yeah, well, here's some uh, memories from our audience next. There were lots about the weather. Uh, as always, thanks to everyone who responds to the tweets I send out asking for these memories. The the number of replies we're getting in this series is, is unbelievable. So thank you to everyone. For this one, though, I gave you the option to pick a second thing, as the first thing was probably quite obvious and uh, red and white with a yellow crash helmet for most people. Lots of people came back with Senna setting the fastest lap by going through the pit lane and not stopping. Uh, which was basically a shortcut inside the final corner at Donington. Thanks to David Handy, Moody, Dan Mason, Jules Seegers, Matt White and Phil Groney, among many others for uh, mentioning that. There was quite a bit of love for the Sonic the Hedgehog winner's trophy. That came from David Edwards, our very own Johnny Reynolds, Gavin Richardson and Justin Potter. This was a good one from Peter Taylor, who was there that day. Peter says, horizontal rain. I was in a covered grandstand overlooking the old hairpin and still got soaked. Uh, Lee F1 Nut also said there was rain, mud, mist and feeling cold all day. Black Mask was one of many people to give shout-outs to the performances of both Rubens Barrichello and Minardi's point scorer Fabrizio Barbazza, along with Matthew Ponto and Piston Rod F1. And lots of you were showing some love for Renault's shock victory in the BTCC support race as well. Not often we get to mention British touring cars on here, so thanks to Ian Court, Dougie Beattie and James Nash for that one. As always, remember if you want to get early access to the episodes in this series, plus bonus content and other perks from the race, sign up to the Race Members Club to check that out. Head to the-race.com forward slash members club. And if you'd like to submit a question for the end of our series where you can ask us anything about F1's V10 era, get in touch using the hashtag bringbackv10s on Twitter or email your question to bringbackv10s at the-race.com. On to Donington 93 then. And in the days leading up to the race, the big news in F1 was the decision by Peugeot to abandon plans to enter F1 with its own team for 1994. This came against the backdrop of speculation that Peugeot's sporting boss, Jean Tot, was soon to be leaving for Ferrari, which of course he did. But Peugeot said the plans broke down because it could not find sponsors to help fund the project. A Peugeot statement announcing the decision said... Peugeot had planned to participate in F1 on the condition of stability of rules and of obtaining financial assistance of sponsors. Although stabilisation of the rules appears to be proceeding well, the determined search for reliable sponsors has not been sufficient to obtain the financial backing necessary. Mark, I'll come to you first on this one. When a manufacturer wants to rely on external sponsorship to fund something as big as a fully-fledged F1 entry, is that a sign that manufacturer isn't serious enough, or do you think a Peugeot F1 team could have worked? I think it's a sign that the board wasn't fully behind the ideas, probably split in the board, and it'd probably come to some compromise. Well, if you can find X amount of... Uh, dollars to subsidize it we will say yes but until then no so um yeah i mean that's always that whim of the board has always been one of the the, the problems of f1 relying upon manufacturers so i don't think persia was particularly unusual in, the, in that respect um could it have 
being a, a top team, well, yeah, I'm sure if it was serious enough and it, it made all the right moves, and yeah, I'm sure it could have been, but um, it, it, it wouldn't have been a short-term project. Gary, you worked with Peugeot as an engine supplier once it had got through that difficult first year with McLaren in 94. From what you saw of how they approached running an engine programme, how do you think they could have got on if they were running a team? Well, yeah, I think it's as Mark said, if they'd, if they'd committed themselves to it, they could have done a good job. They were very, very slow at, at um, taking in the obvious, I suppose you might call it. I mean, 94, obviously, they had lots of problems with, uh, with McLaren. Um, and the engine wasn't reliable. It had lots of fairly basic problems, I think you might call it, even going into 95. And it took most of 95 to sort of work with them and try to sort that out because, you know, they weren't they weren't very reactive. I, that's what I would say. They didn't react to the situation. They always put it down to maybe it wouldn't happen again. And uh, one thing I found out over the time in Formula 1 was you don't get a second chance. You have to sort of react to it as quickly as you can and try and fix it. So... Um, the, the biggest one of their biggest problems I suppose was they were always very good at telling themselves they were they were one of the best and that's never a good position to be in either because again it's all about reaction to a situation um, so it would have been interesting to see what would have happened with them uh, leading their own ship I suppose but I know that the work I had I did in, in 95 96 97 with them um, was to try to drive them to improve. Um, I'm a bit sorry we didn't continue with it in 98 because I think if we had it done, we would have had a very good year. But it, it didn't happen. But they were, as I say, my biggest thing with them was they, they didn't really take in what was going on. They didn't really react to it quickly enough, in my opinion, to if they'd had their own team, they would have struggled with that. Jordan were also in the news heading into Donington as after just two races, there was a change to the team's driver lineup. Ivan Capelli was out, having crashed heavily in South Africa and failed to qualify in Brazil, and Thierry Boutsen was brought in to replace him. Eddie Jordan wrote in his book that Capelli was really the third choice for the seat after Eddie's audacious bid to lure and Senna to the team by offering him a stake in it, which we talked about in our Belgian GP 1992 episode. And then Martin Brundle, who was the next choice, chose Ligier. But Capelli came with the support of Jordan commercial chief Ian Phillips, who'd run him during Capelli's F1 peak at Leighton House March. And Eddie reckoned there was still potential in him, despite his bruising stint at Ferrari in 1992. Jordan said Capelli was devastated when he lost his drive. In Eddie's view, uh, Capelli never recovered mentally from the hammering he received while trying to drive a difficult car at Ferrari. So Gary, you, you saw all of this. Up close, what did you make of Capelli and his brief spell at Jordan? Was he a broken man by then? Well, it's difficult to say he was a broken man, but I must admit that he was um, quite distant. He wasn't at home, but I suppose coming from from a team like Ferrari to uh, to Jordan, that's the way you would feel. You know, you, you'd feel a bit uh, short-handed. But you know, he he, as I say, he felt distant. He wasn't really on top of the situation even from day one. You know, you you talk to him about the car, and he he wasn't really sure what was going on. Um, so it was it was quite a difficult sort of time for him. And I, I don't put it down to maybe his his days at Ferrari, but he, he did whack his head pretty hard in in Montreal in the Ferrari, going through. I think it was the chicane after the start finish. Uh, it turned three and four or four and five, um, and it, it sort of the car tipped itself up, and he banged his head a bit there. And I'm not sure there wasn't something wrong there because. You know, that's the sort of thing about him. He was just that little bit distant. So 
he may time may have improved that, but obviously, whenever you're uh, struggling a little bit with the car, with everything, um, time isn't on your side. And you know, Eddie did react to the situation because sponsorship was very important, and the the changes came uh, mainly because of needing needing money. Well, yeah, we can get into the money side of it a bit more now. As Capelli gave his side of the story on this uh, in an interview with the late Simon Aaron for Motorsport magazine in 2020. Capelli said he was offered the seat for $1 million and after the Kyle Army crash, uh, Eddie was on the phone almost every day asking for the money, which Capelli said was a new kind of pressure, something I'd never encountered before. Then after Capelli failed to qualify in Brazil, he says Jordan told him, you need to bring me that money or you're out. Capelli says he responded by saying that after more than 90 races in F1, he shouldn't have to bring money and that if Jordan wanted him to race, then fine, but he didn't want to be a pay driver. He finished off that story by saying Jordan used five different drivers alongside Barrichello during the season, so it was almost like a rental car. Gary, you mentioned money already, so how does Ivan's side of the story tally with your understanding of what happened, what really happened? Well, I suppose nothing ever changes. If I go back to 91, um, whenever it was our first year with, with Jordan, we were in Brazil, uh, just about to go out for pre-qualifying for the second race of the season. Um, Bertram, had, Bertram Gasho had qualified in in, uh, in Phoenix, uh, got through pre-qualifying and qualified quite well, but uh, we had a, a problem in the, in the race. Uh, so then Brazil came along and it was a circuit where Bertram had always said he thought the car would work very well. Uh, just about five minutes before pre-qualifying started, Eddie came up and told him that he needed another million dollars from him because, uh, you know, things were more expensive than he thought. And Bertram was running about like a, you know, chicken with its head cut off, just didn't know what way it turned, to be honest. He was devastated that suddenly, five minutes before having to go out and, and ring, ring the car's neck, he was being asked for an extra million dollars. So... I can sympathise with, with Bertram for that happening there. I can sympathise with uh, Ivan Capelli for it happening in in, uh, in Brazil again. But that that was sometimes the way Eddie worked. You know, he he, he put people at the, under pressure at the, at the worst possible time, I suppose you might call it. But he was the only one that knew, you know, how deep his pockets were and how much he, he needed out of it to, to make the thing work. Um, so at the end of the day, that's the way he worked and that's the way the drivers got treated. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Donington was only the third race of the season, but already there were rumours that Ricardo Patrese's position at Benetton was under threat. Patrese confirmed in an interview with Motorsport magazine in 2010 that by this stage of the year he was already getting pressure from team boss Flavio Briatore. Patrese said, Flavio said he had to have me. He could not live without me because of my knowledge of the active suspension Williams. But after three or four races, Briatore was saying I was not quick enough. It was time for me to go out to pension. There were a lot of problems with the car, but I wasn't complaining publicly. I was just talking to the team and trying to solve them. But they said I was just making excuses because Schumacher was quicker than me. 
Patrese said Benetton eventually found a problem with his car mid-season, but he and Briatore agreed to cut short their two-year deal at the end of 93, which brought Ricardo's F1 career to an end. Mark, do you think perhaps Patrese was unfortunate here to find himself up against Schumacher when he's when Ricardo's definitely coming towards the end of his career, or, or was 93 just one year too many for Ricardo? Yeah, I think there's a whole confluence of things happening there. It, yes, I think um, Ricardo was probably um, a little bit past his peak. He'd had a great season in 91, um, but he, he did not like the act of cars. Um, he'd been a long way off Nigel Mansell in 92 in the act of Williams, and we're still in the act of era. So um, what was also going on, of course, was that this was already coalescing into a team very much um, around Michael Schumacher. And there was an incident at, um, at a test session later in the year where by some combination of circumstances, he ended up driving Michael's car and realising how much better it was than his own. And uh, that was a, there was a big um, row between him and Flavio at the time about, you know, about the car he'd been given up until that point. So, yeah, the relationship wasn't working. Um, Ricardo wasn't at his best. And uh, these types of, this type of car w- wasn't really suitable for him. Patrese's point about Briatore wanting him for his experience of Williams's active suspension was backed up by Benetton mechanic Steve Matchett in his book, The Mechanic's Tale. Matchett wrote, The wealth of experience and knowledge that Ricardo had gained at Williams undoubtedly saved us weeks, if not months, in both active suspension and our semi-automatic transmission research and testing programmes. His inclusion in the team was invaluable. However, Matchett added that the unfortunate side of Patrese joining was that it was a move the Italian regretted, as he'd made the jump to Benetton before realising Nigel Mansell was going to leave Williams at the end of 1992 and Frank Williams wanted to keep him. In Matchett's words, Patrese didn't really want to be with us, but Patrese said in that motorsport interview that he had given Benetton his word and he didn't want to go back on it once the Williams vacancy appeared. But Gary, I want to talk about Patrese's impact or his knowledge uh, of Williams's technology, the impact that could have at Benetton. What sort of input can a driver bring in that situation? How does a team save weeks just by having a guy in the car who knows what a successful system should operate like? Um, yes, it's obviously a big help if, if a driver can come and, and help you with your, your programme and what you're trying to achieve with it. But I still believe that you need to try to achieve it from your own understanding. You know what you want to achieve to, to make the car better or faster or whatever. And you have to achieve that in very di- very different ways sometimes. You know, I've never liked the driver come and say, oh, you know, as Damon Hill did, oh, the Williams do, do, does it this way or the Williams does this. Um, so I've always been a believer in fresh young drivers who will go out and wring its neck and come back with the information that they're getting at that point in time for you to react to. If you take an example, whenever Irvine left us and went to Ferrari, uh, left Jordan and went to Ferrari at the end of uh, 95 uh, for the 96 season, um, it was one of those sort of situations. Obviously, we we didn't want to lose Eddie, but um, that's what was going to happen. And when he went to Ferrari, we were at the first test and he came up to chat to us as he, as he would and he was saying about how bad the gear change on the Ferrari was. He said it's just like they hit you in the back of the head with a sledgehammer every time you change gear. Uh, and it was very slow as well. So his input to Ferrari helped them to understand that you could have a better gear change. 
Uh, and we we spent a lot of time on the gear change because you know that's the sort of things that we did. So yes, a driver can lead you in a direction, but I think as a team, whenever it comes to the depth of active suspension um, or the semi-automatic gear change uh, stuff, you do need to have your own philosophy within the team, and a, and a driver can guide you a little bit as to whether you're going down that road or not. So I'm not sure that you know it's as valuable as they're making out here as Steve Matchett's making out. I'm not sure that input is as valuable because you've put too much pressure on the driver to bring to the team uh, performance, and I don't think that's the way it should be. Damon Hill didn't come with many, uh, this is what the Arrows is doing, uh, much of that advice for Jordan, I imagine. <laughs> uh, not too much of it, no. But, you know, it's, it's, it's always good to know, um, but you don't know how they go about achieving it. There's so many things on, the, on a car that, that ends up influencing the outcome of the performance. Um you know, suspension geometry relative to aerodynamic shift, for example, they all go hand in hand. And it's about how you achieve that. So you've got to try to understand where you want to get to and how you want to achieve it, how you can achieve it within your your criteria that you set your car out, your, your specification of car. So it's not just about copying somebody else. It's about actually understanding why and how to achieve it, because that's the only way you can go further as well. You have to just give it time and test and develop and uh, get the best out of your own package and not try to copy someone else. We'll stick with the Benetton theme here as Donington marked the arrival of the team's new B193B chassis after a troubled start to the season with the B193A. The A-spec car was really just a 1992 car with active suspension and a semi-automatic gearbox added, plus some aero changes, but that car didn't work, particularly as it wasn't suited to the new narrower tyres that were introduced for 1993. So while there hadn't initially been a plan for an A-spec and a B-spec, Benetton realised very quickly it had no choice. Steve Matchett wrote, The 92 chassis hated the reduced grip imposed by the new regulations. The only real solution would be to design and build a new chassis, one with the weight distribution and suspension geometry perfectly matched to the characteristics of the new tyres. The glue had barely dried on the B193 chassis plates before they were pulled back off and changed again to B193A. Mark, this is the year after Williams has won the championship with a B-spec car, the FW14B. Do you think Benetton were maybe hoping they could pull the same trick, just just kind of take a passive car, turn it active, and, and get the success Williams had the year before? Maybe, uh, yeah. I'm not, I'm not privy to what the thinking was, but um, as well as the narrower tyres in, in, in this transition, 92 to 93, um, you also had a reduction in track, um, tra- regulation track width, which is significant. It was... I think went from 2.1 to, to 2 um, metres, but it's still significant. And um, yeah, it makes sense that the suspension geometries and you know weight distributions uh, were, were very, very different. So yeah, I'm sure Gary could give us more detail on that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's important that the tyres see the loads that they can cope with. The, re- the relationship front to rear is the important thing. Um, so, you know, obviously as, as the tyre woods changed uh, and they used to say the overall car would changed, um, one of our problems with the 93 car was we sort of tried to make the aspect ratio, the wheelbase, relative to the, to the overall width, um, stay consistent. And basically we ended up with too short of, uh, a wheelbase, which meant there was too much load in the rear tyres, which meant that it used the rear tyres too dramatically, too too quickly. So, you know, it was a bit of a combination of everything. You needed to make sure everything was working. But, uh, you know, as we all know, there's a reason for calling it a B. B is for better. <laughs> and that's the only reason you build it. You, you, you try to build a better car and you have to label it something. So, you know, it, it automatically becomes a B-spec. 
Yeah, and, and trying to convert a car during a rule change, we all saw one of the greatest F1 cars ever was the F2004, the Ferrari. And when that ran to the new 2005 rules a year later, it was instantly uncompetitive. But they didn't call, they, they didn't have a B that year, did they? It was, was it a 2004M? So I don't know, what, what could the M have stood for? Miracle. Yeah. <laughs> trying to think of a word for rubbish that begins with M. Back to 93, shall we? Benetton struggles weren't going unnoticed by Ayrton Senna who was frustrated that Benetton was enjoying the top specification of Ford's V8 engine because of its work status, while Senna's McLaren was a step behind as a Ford customer. After the race at Donington, Senna had launched into an attack on Ford and Benetton as Benetton was blocking McLaren from being given engine parity. Senna said, It is a ridiculous situation that Ford is in with us. Ford's only chance to win Grand Prix is with McLaren. Benetton may win a race, but only if the Williams and McLarens are out. But it is stopping Ford from giving us a better engine, which is available. They are only damaging Ford by doing this and taking away some better results from McLaren with Ford. Ford has got two Grand Prix victories, this was out of three races, and is leading the championship with a car that is still underdeveloped and an engine which is recognised as being half a second to a second down on the other specification Ford engine. It is an absurd situation and I feel very frustrated by it. I just hope that someone at Ford picks this thing up and puts it right straight away. Benetton's Tom Walkinshaw said he'd be doing exactly the same thing Senna was in McLaren's position, but he didn't want any supply to McLaren to slow down improvements Benetton was promised by Ford. And Ford F1 boss Steve Parker suggested the manufacturer had little interest in budging on this position, telling Joe Sayward in an interview for Autosport, at the end of last year, we sat down with four teams and reached an agreement about our supply strategy for 1993. We are honouring the terms of those agreements. And he said he doesn't think the deadline for McLaren to get an improved spec will differ from the one we agreed. Gary, if you were involved in this situation from a team perspective, is it just as simple as if you're McLaren, you want to put pressure on Ford? And if you're Benetton, you'd be blocking McLaren getting a better engine or, or should, well, should anyone have done anything differently? Well, actually, Glenn, interestingly, I was involved in a very similar scenario. Um, 1991, we were using the the Ford engine as it was, or Cosworth engine. Um, and um, we had a situation for where at the beginning of the year, our car was pretty good. Uh, it was pretty quick. And we were challenging uh, the Benetton, which was the works Ford team as such. So Eddie was always after a better deal. So he was chasing um, Ford to supply him with the, the Benetton spec engine, which again, as, as Ayrton Senna says, there was a half a second, maybe a second difference in it. So Eddie was chasing that, and prior to the Canadian Grand Prix, we got a phone call one day from uh, the guy who at that point in time, I'm not going to mention any names, um, was managing director of Cosworth to say that he, there was uh, two, uh, how do we call it, spare Benetton spec engines that they would supply to Jordan for use in Canada, because obviously Canada was a, an, it's an engine circuit, you know, all those long straights that uh, they would supply to us, but we must keep it quiet and not tell anybody. And I thought, oh, that smells a little bit here. But uh, anyway, uh, they never arrived, needless to say. Um, but it was such a big thing at the time. It was just one of those sort of situations where, you know, the left and the right hand not really talking to each other, not really understanding the circumstances. I don't know how Cosworth would end up with two nice little um, Ford engines as such sitting at the end of the end of the workshop ready to put in a van. Um <laughs> 
but it, it, things don't change. You know, it's exactly the same scenario there. Obviously, we were pushing to try and get the better spec engine because there was one available, or there was there was a, a better spec there. It wasn't as though it had to be created. And obviously, Benetton were trying to stop us. And it was exactly the same scenario as, as McLaren and Benetton. Nothing ever changes. It's just the same argument. With just a, the name of the team might change a little bit here and there. Yeah, that, that's that's just that's a rep, it's a complete replica. That's amazing. hundred percent replica of what happened at uh, Glen. Yes, it's just one of those sort of situations where. You know, you uh, haven't been around for a little while. You sort of look at it and have a smile because you just, that's that's all you can do, really. I just couldn't comprehend how it could ever happen. But there were people within Jordan that felt it was just, you know, we're waiting on that van arriving uh, with these engines in the back. And just <laughs> two guys were standing there waiting to unload them. So uh, never quite happened. But there you go. They got intercepted by Benetton on the motorway, I reckon. Could be. <laughs> while, uh, while we're on the subject of Senna Rage, let's cover the, uh, the other contractual wrangling he was involved in at this stage of the year. His famous race-by-race race contract for $1 million per race. We talked about this a bit in our uh, Portugal 93 episode back in Series 2. And the background is that Ron Dennis was struggling to get Senna to sign a deal for 1993, as Senna was worried about the customer Ford V8 following Honda's departure at the end of 92. And when Ron told Senna the cost of the engine deal meant he only had $5 million available, Senna told him, fine, I'll just do the first five races then. Senna's manager, Julian Jacobi, explained this very well on the F1 Beyond the Grid podcast, saying, if the money didn't arrive by the Wednesday, he didn't come to the race. He sat at home waiting. He didn't leave. Marlborough commercial guru John Hogan was one of the central people involved in this deal. And in Malcolm Folly's book, Senna vs. Prost, Hogan was asked if they thought Senna was bluffing when he said he was prepared not to race in 1993. Hogan said, would you have taken the chance? I wasn't going to. It might have been one of the greatest bluffs of all time. Who knows? Hogan added that Marlborough then hatched a plan to work together with McLaren's other major sponsors, including Shell, to find the extra money needed to keep Senna racing. Senna was asked about the status of his race-by-race race deal at Donington, and uh, he did my favourite thing of saying, I will make no comment about that, and then going on very much to comment on it. He said he didn't see the benefit of going into the details in public, and he added, All I can tell you is that I don't regret at all what I have done so far under the circumstances, and if I don't race in the future, I will not regret. Mark, how did you feel about the way Senna handled this in 1993? Should he have shown more commitment to McLaren? I don't know. He's Senna was very much um, out for Senna. You know, he was. Uh, yeah, he, he achieved a lot of success in partnership with McLaren, but he he never really sort of signed up to the the quest, if you like, in the way that say Michael Schumacher did at uh, Ferrari um, or Lewis Hamilton at Mercedes. Yeah, he was very much a sort of tiger who hunted alone, and this was part of that, you know, and I think on the other side of the coin, Ron Dennis felt that he'd been paying so much money for to have Senna on the team um, previously that he hadn't been able to invest as much as he wanted into the new technologies, and he felt that Williams had um, got ahead of McLaren as a result of that, as a result of being able to invest more in technologies. And so he'd invested heavily in the technology of the, the 93 car, or McLaren had, and um, yeah, the, he, he was trying to rebalance the, 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 those skills. And it's very difficult when you've got someone that brings as much as Senna did, just in terms of sheer brilliance and lap time, working out how much 
that is worth compared to how much investing in the new technology. Um, and so, yeah, there, there were you could see from both sides it was just at an awkward transition um, in, in in balancing those scales. Another storyline brewing over the Donington weekend was F1's push to ban driver aids for 1994, being led by FISA, which back then was the sporting arm of the FIA. Interestingly, the FIA was trying to push this through via the sporting regulations, which teams were pushing back against as they felt this was clearly a technical matter. uh, FISA sent a memo to the teams around this time saying the rules that were coming in were intended to make sure that the driver operates the car by himself. He must not have the help of a computer or the aid of people in the pits. The number of drivers, human or robot, is clearly a sporting matter and has nothing to do with the technical specification of the car. By now, Max Mosley was in power. And he said that many of the teams objected to his proposals. He eventually got them to agree to a piece of wording that simply said the driver must drive the car alone and unaided. Mosley said in his book the teams liked it because they assumed the rule was too vague to be enforced. But his view was that from a lawyer's perspective, a driver aid was whatever the stewards and the FIA thought it was. Those who take interest in such things know very well that the less clear the law, the greater the power of the judges. Sometimes the rather narrow outlook of some team principles could be helpful. Gary, I presume you were involved in all of this and you'd have seen firsthand how Max was trying to get this over the lines. What do you remember about how all of this played out? Um, yeah, I do remember it fairly well. I mean, it's, it's what we call the grey area, and uh, the FIA had always been very good at creating that grey area where, depending on how you read it, as to how you sort of uh, policed it, I suppose. And you know, Max was right. It was it was a time that lawyers were now becoming more important than, than technical people, uh, and that's continued since those since those years. Now it's what thirty years ago, nearly. So it's one of those sort of situations where. You need to make sure that dotting the I's and crossing the T's that you understand what they're trying to push through. I've seen so many regulations now that you you could you could read them on the way that actually what was being talked about, especially with Max and Bernie at that time, the, the Max and Bernie shows it was called. You know, whenever those two were sort of telling you something, you knew it was just three sixty from what they were trying to make happen, and that they were just trying to get you on their side a bit. So. Uh, the driver aid thing, I mean, it was one of those sort of situations. We'd, we had started to spec out a car, again, using the, the company that did our, uh, was doing our car control system uh, to work with them to be a completely active car. It was an active suspension, uh, active steering, you know, active everything, basically. Every wheel was independent. The, uh, the turning radius of every wheel was independent. The load on every wheel would be independent. So the driver would be the guy that would put the input uh, if you wanted to go faster, you press this pedal on the right-hand side. And if you wanted to go slower, you press the pedal on the left-hand side. If you wanted to turn right, you turn the steering wheel to the right. The car would then de- decide how best to turn the car to the right or turn the car to the left. Um, am I glad it didn't happen? Yes, probably. Whenever I think of all the problems we had with just the simple stuff like uh, getting the, the, active, or the automatic gear change stuff to work. Um, but it's one of those sort of situations where, you know, it gets out of control so quickly. And I think Max and, and, uh, and Bernie as such were right to try to pull it back to reality uh, because it could have got out of control. And it would have taken a lot of time to have got it to be a, to a position where it was reliable uh, and safe, I suppose you might call it. So it was probably better to act to at that point in time and generate that grey area where the FIA could come in and uh, look at things differently and that's that's really to this day it still stays there the FIA can come in and look at things differently if they do so wish to 
There's been a long-held theory that the ban on driver aids was pushed for primarily by Ferrari, which was making an absolute mess of things like active suspension, so it wanted to get rid of all the gizmos. Mosley was always quite sensitive about any accusations of favouring Ferrari, of which there were many, so it's perhaps no surprise that his book offered a different motive for deciding to ban driver aids. He said he was personally concerned about computers taking over an ever-increasing number of tasks for the driver, as motorsport is supposed to be a test of driving skill. And he said the real impetus to take action came from Senna, who sent him a handwritten Christmas card in 1992, saying F1 could not continue like this and calling for change. Mosley said, I took this as a plea to get rid of the electronic aids and we knew that other top drivers felt the same. I fully understood that motor racing has always involved a machine as well as a human and that the greatest driver would be helpless without a suitable car, but most people felt that it was for the driver to make the most of a mechanical car without assistance. It was the essence of his skill. Inside the FIA, we thoroughly agreed with Senna. What about you, Mark? Did you agree with Senna on driver aids? Yes, largely. Um, and I, I think the way that Max <laughs> went about it was um, just finding someone who agreed with him and then pretending the impetus had come from <laughs> them just because it met with the, his, his own agenda. But um, that's how it was a lot with Max and, and to a lesser extent Bernie. You'd quite often agree with where they're trying to get to, but the way they went about it, you'd put the hackles up sometimes. Um, but yes, I think... Um, I, I think we, we we all wanted to see um, drivers controlling the car, um, you know, with with their own sensors and um, traction control was a, quite an emotive one. Uh, I think actually a more important one would have been if stability control had come in, so you could just you know um, turn in from roughly the right part of the track at roughly the right speed, and the car would have done the rest. As Gary was um, sort of touching on before, that, that I think that would have been disastrous. You wouldn't have seen any difference between, you know, a, a good driver and a very great driver if we'd had that. So, yeah, I think, um, by and large, Senna and Max were, were both right. I just, um, uh, yeah, the way Max used to go about getting stuff across the line, as he put it, um, did, did sometimes irk. Before we get into the race, let's detail quickly, because in April 1993, Perry McCarthy, who we had on the show for our Andrea Moda episode in Series 4, got a phone call from Williams asking him to do some testing for them. Williams was without a test driver at this stage after promoting McCarthy's friend Damon Hill, and McCarthy felt he was in the running to land that gig. He did a two-day test of ABS development running, there's more driver aids, where he said he didn't get along well with Williams' test team manager, who he felt had already made his mind up about me. Williams then chose David Coulthard as its new test driver, and while Frank Williams promised in a fax to run McCarthy again in the future, it never happened. Perry said in his excellent book, Flat Out, Flat Broke, that missing out on this chance was when he decided to give up on his F1 dream and briefly give up on his racing career altogether. He said, I was devastated not to be picked. I sat down and decided that enough was enough. I just couldn't take any more disappointment. I'd tried everything and I fought the world, but now at 32, I'd lost faith. I just had to come to terms with the fact that I'd given it a bloody good go, but ultimately my mission had failed. It was time to do something else. Mark, looking at this from Williams's perspective, do you think Coulthard was a better fit than McCarthy for that role? Probably, yeah. I mean, um, Perry's junior career was sketchy because he'd you know, gone from 
one cash-strapped opportunity to another one, and you'd, you'd never really, you could never really see his ultimate potential. He, he had some ability, I'm sure. Um, Coulthard was a you know junior Formula Ford champion. Um, he was in the running for the British F3 Championship. He was competitive in Formula 3000. So yeah, I mean, he was probably a, and he was a lot younger. So yeah, he was probably a better fit in that sense. And and if you're looking to future potential um, of the test driver to maybe slot in as, as a race driver at some point in the future, yes, I would say Coulthard was probably a more logical fit. Yeah, and after having Damon Hill, Williams probably wanted a test driver in his 20s <laughs> as a replacement. Uh, let's have a quick chat then about Donington as an F1 venue. Track owner Tom Wheatcroft had long hoped to land a Grand Prix one day, and he got his chance when the Autopolis circuit in Japan went bankrupt, giving up its planned April slot for an Asian Grand Prix. So Bernie Eccleston offered Wheatcroft the slot in the calendar, and Donington's first World Championship Grand Prix was confirmed in November 1992. Unfortunately, the weather was terrible on two of the three days of the event, which took place over Easter weekend. And only 50,000 fans turned up on race day. 80,000 had been hoped for, and the previous year's British Grand Prix at Silverstone in the middle of summer, at the height of Mansell Mania, of course, had pulled in 130,000 fans. Damon Hill called the circuit really narrow and tight for F1 cars, particularly at those speeds, hemmed in by concrete walls around the track and very few runoff areas. Wheatcroft had hoped to retain a place on the calendar beyond 1993 and promised to upgrade Donington's pit and paddock facilities to F1 standard if so, but Donington remains a one-off in F1 history, despite of course the ambitious attempt that was made to poach the British Grand Prix from Silverstone from 2010 onwards. But Gary, going back to when the F1 world descended on Donington in 1993, what were the facilities like for the teams? And did you think the circuit itself was fit for purpose for F1 cars? Um, I think as a, as a substitute coming in very late in the day, it was it was okay. Um, it wasn't by any means fantastic. The facilities, you know, we'd all grown to like better garages, bigger garages, more space, more room for the trucks, more room for everything. And, you know, it wasn't to be. But sometimes you just should make do with what you've got and make the best out of it. We, we still see to this day that, you know, you can race at a track. Uh, well, for example, like Monaco, um, it's been there for years and, and, and accepted. It's very, very different from, you know, the US Grand Prix or Silverstone or whatever, but it's, it's just different. And I think that's what uh, that's what Donington was. It uh, the facilities were not up to spec by any means, but they were adequate. The track itself, as as Damon says, you know, was a bit narrow here, here and there. But then so is Monaco, so you, you just have to put up with it. And uh, you, as a driver, you take your risks where you can take your risks, and uh, and you have to look after it in, in other parts of the track, other areas where you can't take risks. So. I saw nothing really wrong with it. The weather was the biggest thing, I suppose. It just it just was a horrible weekend, and it would have been a horrible weekend at any racetrack. Uh, but the outcome of the race was was a good event, and you know people still talk about Donington '93 to this day. So it it had an impact for sure, and it was sad to see it not not reappear. You know, uh, alternatively, let's say with Silverstone, or in some way that it could still be used for the odd. Uh, as it was called then, European Grand Prix, which was a, an extra race in every year. Um, but it wasn't to be, and you know the powers to be decided that it was better to not not let it drag on and, and save a lot of money for uh, Tom Wheatcroft to to uh, renovate it completely. 
Mark, I'm going to throw a quick question to you here. Did you go trackside on the Saturday in the in the dry? Did you get to see F1 cars at speed in the dry around Donington? Yes, I did, yep. What were they like? <laughs> um, yeah, pretty damn impressive through the craner curves. <laughs> um, I mean, it, like Gary says, you, 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 you soon adapt. And um, it gave a, a fantastic sensation of speed, but within 10 minutes it was normal because you're watching, you're watching everybody do pretty much the same speed. Um, but yeah, I mean, they were they were impressive, and you did get a, a sense of um, there was some peril involved. You know, the 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 the, gr- the grass was just 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 there, just beyond the the edges, and you know there were solid things to hit. So you 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 were very aware of that watching it. But yeah, it was it was it was good. It was uh, it was a good spectacle. So as we mentioned there, the the only day of dry running was the Saturday. So we had a pretty predictable grid. Prost and Hill locked out the front row for Williams, while Schumacher narrowly outqualified Senna for third in the battle of the Ford teams. Behind them, Carl Venlinger and Michael Andretti shared row three. And a shout out to All Sport magazine here, which said that third row was an accident in search of a corner to happen at. (laughs) <laughs> as it did. Uh, JJ Leto was seventh on the grid, although he would start from the pits. And the two Ferraris of Gerhard Berger and John Alessi were next up, with Patrese's Benetton completing the top 10. There's only one place to go from here, and that is, of course, Senna's phenomenal opening lap. So before we get into it, let's hear how Murray Walker and James Hunt called what is often referred to as the greatest opening lap in F1 history. Cross gets away well, so does and is down to fifth position and Wendlinger is up into third place ahead of Schumacher brilliant start by the Austrian driver in the black Sauber Prost leads Hill second Wendlinger is third and Ayrton Senna is up to fourth position ahead of Schumacher and challenging Wendlinger as they go round the right-hander into the old hairpin Senna is up to third and after being crowded at the start a quite brilliant couple of corners by Ayrton Senna Tremendous stuff. He muscled his way back into the contention at Redgate. He's going inside Damon Hill. And Senna into second place already. And he's giving it absolutely everything in the wet part of the race. And Senna goes through into the lead. He's passed Alain Prost, so the McLaren leads. Prost second, Hill is third. A tremendous gap between the third and fourth car. Those of you paying attention there will notice that we cut out the Andretti-Venlinger crash that did find a corner to happen at. We talked about that at length in our Andretti 1993 episode uh, in the previous series, so go and check that one out. But let's revisit Senna's lap in a bit more detail. He's actually a bit slow off the line, getting out dragged by Venlinger, and he only starts to make up ground on Schumacher once the McLaren's traction control kicks in and gives it an advantage over the Benetton. But Schumacher then moves across on Senna, forcing him towards the pit exit and he has to lift off. Senna repasses the Benetton in the exit of the first corner, then sweeps around Venlinger's third-place Sauber down to the Craner Curves, or through the Craner Curves. He then passes Damon Hill for second at McLean's, and four corners later goes down the inside of Alain Prost to take the lead at the Melbourne hairpin. Speaking about the start after the race, Senna said, I decided to go for it before the Williamses had a chance to settle down. They have technical superiority, so we felt this was the best tactic. Mark, this lap has gone down in F1 folklore. You were there. Did you get the same feeling at the time witnessing it? And of the moves he pulled, was there one that was more impressive than the others? 
The most impressive one was the move off the line through the craners on Wendlinger um, because you could see quite clearly that uh, the, 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 there was no tire tracks there you know it was you were going on to a much damper part of the track and he just didn't even hesitate to do that and i'd seen him do similar things in formula three you know when when there's like cement dust down on the opening lap and nobody's sure how much grip there is he just commits fully to it um so that was the probably the most difficult move he pulled off um the one on damon he didn't get much resistance to um and similarly with prost and i think the williams was not very good with its um, its downshift and, and and was not very good in in the, in the Adelaide hairpin, so again probably a relatively easy pass, um, but his first move where he sort of brought Michael to one side and then swooped around the other that was very good. That was you, you know it, it was a it was a perfect opening lap, um, but it's yeah I did, did I get the sensation it was going to go down as one of the all-time great laps? And probably not. It was, but it was very impressive. And that it, the the move that stood out was uh, the very brave one around the outside of the craners. Now you mentioned there not much resistance from Damon Hill. He Damon mentioned this in his book, expressing regret on how easy he made it for Senna. Damon said, "On the first lap, I didn't put up put up much of a fight, which still irritates me. Perhaps I shouldn't have allowed Senna to pass me so easily, and I made a note to myself that survival in this game would require me to harden up considerably." Hill said he'd been cautious because he'd spun at the start on his first race for Williams in South Africa and he didn't want a repeat of that just two races later in the difficult conditions. So Mark, you said there about not much resistance from Damon. Hearing it in Damon's words, is he being a bit hard on himself or should he have got his elbows out? It's difficult to know because there's Damon in his first season in a top team absolutely not wanting to blot his copybook. You know, you saw what happened one corner later with Michael Andretti. You, you could easily get yourself into a situation like that. And all of a sudden, you're not you're not building on, you know, the your, your, your foundations. You're, you're in crisis management mode. So he probably was just playing. It's probably part of him playing himself in early season. Um, but yeah, as, as, a, as a, a racing driver, I can understand his frustration in hindsight because yeah, there's an opportunity there to um, to fight him and, and to you know um, maybe maybe establish a bit more credentials in that way. But who knows? You you, can, you cannot you cannot only judge it in the moment. I think I think one thing to add there is just basically no matter who you are, you know, every day and every way you can learn something new. And, and Damon obviously learned something new that day, and that's important. It was very early in his F1 career, so it was important to put it in the bank for the future and, and know that you know you maybe have to approach it slightly differently in those type of conditions at the beginning of a race. Um, if he hadn't, if he had done it and got away with it there, maybe he wouldn't have done that in the future, so on and so forth. So, yeah, it's very very courageous, I think, of Damon to stand up and say, "Look, I I was a bit easy going, um, but for his future, it was probably good to learn something." And in fairness to Damon, I would say that I don't think Hill being easy to pass on the first lap of this race made the difference between Senna winning and losing it. Behind Senna, something just as impressive was happening. As in just his third F1 start, new boy Rubens Barrichello went from 12th to 4th on the opening lap. He was, of course, helped by the Andretti Wenlinger crash and Leto starting from the pits, but even so, he still made up five places on track. I said just as impressive there, but Eddie Jordan disagreed because he said it was even more amazing than what Senna did for Barrichello to somehow work his way to fourth during that crazy opening lap. 
So Gary, Rubens was driving your car. Was his opening lap better than Senna's? I think it was very impressive, yes, because, you know, uh, with all the best world in the world, Senna was up the front. There was three cars theoretically in front of him. So a lot less spray, a lot less uh, uh, a lot less to deal with than Rubens, who was um, 12th on the grid and uh, got up through to fourth. Yes, he got helped by a couple of other cars crashing, but, you know, they've all got that opportunity before the race starts to go and crash if you want to. Um, so I think he did a very good job. And it, the circumstances are slightly different from that because we, we at that point in time, were developing our uh, electronic gear shift system. We had a sequential gear change system on the car in, in 1992, but it was still a mechanical system where you pulled and pushed a lever. And we had been putting this electronic system on the car to try to not have to let go of the steering wheel to pull and push it, so you use paddles. And we were having problems with it. So we did a deal with, with Eddie on the way to the race meeting where um, if, it, uh, if it worked all during practice, we could use it in the race. If it didn't, one, one glitch and we had to change it to the mechanical system. And Terry Butson's car ran with the mechanical system the whole time. So I think Terry, for his size in that car, which was a very tight cockpit, uh, did a very good job having to reach down to this gear lever all the time. But um, as for Rubens then, we, we ran in practice with the electronic gear change. And come the Saturday night, Eddie wanted us to change it back again. We hadn't had any problems, so we had a, a big debate about it. And Rubens really went wild saying, you, you know, you can't do this to me now. I'm used to it. It's really great. It makes such a difference. And it's those little things that give him the confidence. You know, again, Rubens on the first lap of the race, if he had had to suddenly let go of the, the steering wheel and reach for a gear lever or whatever, he, he, you know, he wouldn't have done a good, as good a lap. But he knew the car. He knew how it was. He knew how to how to use it, how to work it, how to use the gear change, how to part, part the throttle shift, you know, all the right stuff to make that first lap uh, as aggressive as a driver can without having to think about what he's doing. And uh, so it's it's all a package. And I think that's just getting your driver at home with the situation. And I think that day we learned that, that Rubens was going to be one of those exceptional drivers in the wet, which we, he ended up being. I mean, he's one of the best I've ever worked with in, in wet conditions as to finding the grip and putting the car on the limit. So, uh, yeah, I think his first lap was as impressive as, as Ayrton Senna's. And Barrichello proved this was no fluke as he stayed in the mix all day. Once Schumacher and Alessi were out of the running, Barrichello was the only driver in the same race as Senna and the Williamses. And around the 50 lap mark, he even had a spell in second place as the Williams drivers kept getting their tyre choices wrong and made so many pit stops. Barrichello referenced this on the F1 Beyond the Grid podcast. He said he saw P2 on his pit board, but then he saw Senna in his mirrors, so he assumed he was leading. He added, uh, I'm thinking... I'm going to close the door because although he's my hero, I need to win this race. Then I found out I was in P2 and he was lapping me. Eddie Jordan was full of praise for Barrichello's performance. Uh, in Eddie's book, he said, uh, This was a stunning performance in the most difficult circumstances imaginable. The boy was driving like a veteran in such elevated company. Then with six laps to go, he moved into third when Hill made a late stop. This was too much to take in. It may have been bitterly cold, but we did not feel a thing. Was a podium finish on the cards for Jordan? Mark, we'll get Gary to talk us through the heartbreak of why that podium finish didn't materialise in a moment. But given Barrichello's complete lack of F1 experience, how good was this drive? Oh, it was terrific. Um, and it was, I, I mean, I'd seen Barrichello, covered Barrichello in 
Formula 3 and I'd, I'd seen what he could do um, in con- conditions of low grip and um, particularly with the Marlboro Masters um, that year the Formula 3s ran on narrow GM Lotus rubber and the cars were all over the place because it, it was much narrower and harder compound tyres and he was just a completely different class to anyone else he was fantastic around there that weekend and um yeah, I wasn't really that surprised. It was deeply impressive. Um, he was he was very very good in low grip. Yeah. Okay, so six laps from the end, Barrichello's car stopped at the side of the track. Although the official reason for retirement was lack of fuel pressure, uh, we all know what that means. There was no fuel pressure because there was no fuel left in the tank. Eddie Jordan said he couldn't really hear what Rubens was saying on the radio before the car stopped, but he could tell from your face, Gary, that it was not good news. Uh, In Eddie's book, he added, having been soaked to the skin, everyone suddenly felt cold and miserable. There was nothing to be said. The motorhome was some distance from the back of the garage, and that walk was among the longest and loneliest I can remember. So talk us through it, Gary. What was going through your mind in those closing stages? And um, tell us why the car ran out of fuel. Well, it's like anything, you know, the old heart was thumping pretty hard. Um, It was our, you know, potentially going to be a, a good result for us. Uh, as you said earlier, Glenny, you know, through the whole race, he had been up there competitive from, from getting up to fourth at the, uh, on the first lap. He was in the mix all the time for that, uh, for points finish, at least the top six. And with a bit of luck, the podium, but for sure the top six. And then suddenly nothing. Uh, initially, I thought it was uh, perhaps the, the, the electronic, the gear change had gone wrong. And obviously when that happens, then the thing will stop which was really what Eddie didn't want to happen and obviously I didn't want to happen either. Uh, but then we, we realised it was fuel pressure. And as you say, fuel pressure is a strange thing. There's lots of reasons for not having fuel pressure, but the main reason usually is there's no fuel in the tank. Now, the positive side of that was whenever we got the car back and we opened up the fuel tank, uh, the, the fuel tank was dry. So it proved that our fuel system worked very well. It would... Uh, it would use every drop of fuel that was in the tank, but unfortunately there wasn't enough fuel in there. So then our analysis was based on finding out why that had happened. At that point in time, we were getting fuel from a, a fuel supplier and we were refitting it into uh, other containers that had Sassel on them because we were sponsored by Sassel. The fuel would come um, in 50 litre cans and we would put, uh, the can held 60 litres. So when we re- redid it, we put 60 litres in each can. It was before the time whenever we weighed the fuel. It was just we used quantity. And unfortunately, for some reason, one can, we would then mark the top of the can with an X on it. So to say that this, is, you know, this was was, re- was recanned, there was 60 in there. And for some reason, uh, uh, a fresh can, which only had 50 litres in it, was was put into the race, the race car as one of the race cans instead of three 60 litre cans, um, 180 litres, or it was probably 240 at the time we were putting in, something like that. But, you know, instead of three cans going in at 160, we had two cans at 60, which is 120, and a, and a 50, which makes it 170. So we were short of uh, about 10 kilograms of fuel for that rate, that length of the, uh, the, the distance. So it was a screw up on our behalf. Uh, it was by no means intentional. It was just, you know, one of those things that we learned by. Uh, we went to wait after that, to be honest, to reduce the risk of that sort of thing happening. But it, it shouldn't have happened anyway. We were, we did cover it quite well in how we did it. But it just meant that, uh, you know, a full can, as I say, because if you pumped it out of the car, a full can would be 60 litres. So it was easy to fill a can full and say that's 60 litres, than half fill a can or whatever. And 
and try to have lesser in it. So uh, a mistake by our refueling man, but a mistake that we learned a lot by. So as we all know, Senna won the race comfortably with Hill in second and Prost third. But let's have a shout out for Johnny Herbert in fourth place in his Lotus. Not only was that a great result, but on a day where the top three made five, six and seven stops respectively in the changeable conditions, Johnny only made one. In the post-race press conference, Hill got a laugh out of Senna when he suggested you could have gone through the whole race on slicks apart from the first 20 laps. But Herbert came in for slicks on lap 10 and through all the changing conditions that had made that left most of the field scrambling to go from slicks to wets and back again several times, Herbert held his nerve. Johnny said at the time, I thought the best thing I could do was stay out and go as carefully as I could. Unless it was really wet, there wasn't much difference between slicks and wets, and the wets wouldn't have lasted during the dry periods. Lotus team boss Peter Collins said Lotus kept its nerve when others panicked, and he said Herbert's drive was stunning and the car wasn't a match for his ability. Herbert expanded on this to Motorsport magazine in 2013, saying, I never felt as though I was verging on an accident, so I might as well carry on. I spent a lot of my F1 career in cars that weren't at the sharp end, so calculated risks were often the best option. Gary, if I've counted up right, Barrichello made six stops that day for Jordan. What was this race like on the pit wall, trying to control all of that? Did it ever cross your mind to try and keep Rubens out on slicks and cut down the number of stops? Or were you perhaps, because you were up there with the lead cars, do you then feel compelled to keep reacting to what they're doing? I don't think you should feel compelled to keep reacting to what they're doing. I think if you're in a tight, a close dice with someone, yes, you just want to match them. But in the situation we were in, you know, with all the best will in the world, Ayrton Senna was a rocket ship beside the, the lap time performance that we were putting in. So we had to read our own race. And I think we just did the stops to suit. When Rubens felt it was ready for wets, we put wets on. And when it was ready for slicks, we put slicks on. So we didn't take any gambles. Um, you know, I, I don't disagree with what Johnny did because uh, Donington was one of those tracks where the, it was quite high grip, actually. The circuit we've seen over the years quite a few times where... In, in certain levels of condition, water conditions, you can actually drive. Uh, Magni Kerr for a few years was exactly the same. You, there was more grip there than you could ever imagine uh, in, a, in a slippery conditions like wet. So we did what we needed to do, I think, for the, for the, at that point in time. We were obviously a bit uh, excited about running with the, the leading bunch. So we just wanted to try and do the job as best possible. We never really would have thought about trying to survive through bad periods to make our result better because we'd have been very happy with the result we should have got if we had got it so uh maybe it's like damon hill said he accepted uh accepted it too easily at the beginning of the race maybe we accepted it too easily but you know as i say you live and learn every day yeah and as you say if uh if the jordan's already up there you don't need to take a gamble like maybe lotus did but let's talk about Prost's miserable day then. Uh, plenty of you mentioned this uh, in your in your first thing that comes to mind memories. Um, we, did, we didn't get to them, but so, so many people said uh, Alain Prost coming in and out of the pits all day. He made seven stops, which was more than anyone else. Although that was because at one point he thought he had a puncture when actually Williams had got its slick tyre pressures wrong for the conditions. Prost said he had clutch and gearbox problems all race, including on the opening lap, which is why he felt Senna was able to get past him for the lead. I think Mark mentioned the, the downshift issue earlier. Prost said, it was impossible to brake late because I was locking the rear wheels. When you called for a gear, it would not come immediately. And the clutch problem meant he st also stalled at one of his pit stops. 
Despite all the pit stops, Prost felt he made good decisions on when to change tyres, but he said the car was undrivable on slicks. After Prost finished detailing his miserable day, Senna jokingly asked him if he'd like to swap cars. Hill referenced this in his book, saying Senna took the piss out of Alain, he gloated and it was slightly unattractive. Prost felt he was unfairly maligned for his performance that day. He said in Maurice Hamilton's brilliant book about the history of Williams, uh, when you lose a race like Donington, people did not want to realise that there were many reasons for this. At Imola, I had to drive with a sticking throttle and I won. Why should I be attacked when it was wet at Donington? And yet nobody said Imola was a good race. When I was winning, it was seen as absolutely normal because I had the best car with the best team, more horsepower than Ayrton and things like this. It's never that simple. So Mark, you were there. I think you, you witnessed Senna's press conference performance as well. Do you think Prost was unfairly criticised for his performance in this race? Yes, I do. And uh, was I agree with Damon, it was quite unattractive because Prost was just, you know, honestly and openly um, answering the questions and Senna used it to demean him and he had no need to. He just delivered this magnificent performance and he didn't need to behave like that to you know, rubbish everybody else. Um, and it, it wasn't attractive. And I think... On that day, yes, overall, the, the Williams was a faster car than the McLaren that year, without a doubt. But on that day, it wasn't. It was a slower car than the McLaren that day. And I think had they swapped cars, you would have seen a very different race. <laughs> well, let's get into Senna's brilliance then, uh, car or no car. We'll come to that in a moment. His wet weather prowess was well known by this stage. And one area where he seemed to make a difference was being more willing to brave it out on slicks whenever the conditions worsened rather than panicking too quickly each time to come in for wets. However, Senna said this was partly down to the way his car was behaving on wets when the track was only damp. He said driving with slicks in the damp and really slippery conditions was a tremendous effort because you just don't get the feeling from the car. I had to gamble on this on some occasions because on wet tyres, my car was a bit funny with low water on the circuit. When there was a lot of water, it was okay, but just light water or damp, my car was not working well, so I had to gamble on the slicks. Senna's death just over a year after this meant he never got much chance to reflect on this performance later on. But in a BBC documentary released after his death, there was a brief comment about it where Senna said, I don't remember a Grand Prix that was won in such a style. It was one of these days that everything came together. The driver, the team, the circumstances on the circuit, or circuit as Ayrton always said, the pit stops, the information, the strategy, and there you put together an incredible, fascinating result. Now, Mark's already mentioned briefly uh, how good the McLaren was that day. So let's finish by getting into that in a little more detail, because this is always held up as one of Senna's best drives. But there are questions about how much of a role the car played. And we had questions when we said we were doing this episode. People were asking, you know, was it the car? Was it the driver age? You know, were there more factors behind it? Prost has an opinion on this, saying in Morris Hamilton's Williams book, Ayrton's car was technically a different car when it was wet. Ayrton was very fast, but in these conditions, the McLaren was much better. Also on the Williams side, both Patrick Head and Adrian Newey have spoken more generally about Williams versus McLaren from 1993. Head said, nothing against Ayrton. The McLaren active ride system had by that time surpassed ours. 
If Active Ride had continued into 1994, we would have run on something I suspect even better than McLaren. We were just running what we had because it was so dominant, we didn't have to develop it. And Newey added that because the Williams FW15 had originally been planned to race in 1992, the car was well developed, but the downside was it was a nine-month-old design in contrast to its rivals. It's not only people from Williams that have spoken about the cars. Even McLaren boss Ron Dennis perhaps inevitably talked up the role of the MP48 in Senna's success. Ron said in 2018 on the McLaren website, that was a race which really saw the best from that particular car, which was fully electronic. It provided the driver with the opportunity to concentrate on driving. We contributed a lot to that race because the car did a lot of thinking for the driver. All the driver had to do was drive it. And of course, that's something Ayrton did very well. It was one of his best drives, but it was also one of the best races for the team. So Mark, you, you mentioned already the contrast of Williams versus McLaren on that day in those conditions. Do you think the McLaren MP48, underpowered engine or no underpowered engine, deserves a lot of credit for this win as well? Yeah, it was a it was a very advanced car. It was a terrific car. It just had a, a horsepower shortfall. Um, really, I think that was all that separated it in, over, over the season. And the, the Renault was just um, a, a much more potent engine than the, the, the V8. The V10 Renault was a much more potent engine than the, the the Ford V8, um, and allowed Williams to load the car up with with wing and m more so than the McLaren. But I think as a, a piece of technology, that the MP4A was a, a terrific car, a wonderful car. Yep, some things never change in F1. Even the greatest drivers can't do much with a terrible car, and that McLaren MP4A would have caused Williams a lot more problems that year with a more powerful engine. That certainly wasn't a terrible car. But that's it for Donington '93. Thanks to Gary and to Mark for your first-hand memories of being there that weekend. Next time, we're making the first of two trips in this series into F1's V8 era as we head to the 2006 Hungarian Grand Prix, another memorable rain-affected race where Jensen Button famously claimed the first win of his F1 career. Athletic.